and welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, the arable podcast hosted by me, Alice Dyer, and brought to you by The Crop Tech Show, Arable Farming Magazine, and sponsored by Yara, the crop nutrition company. Before we get started on today's episode, don't forget if you're on the basis register, you can claim one CPD point for tuning in by emailing the name of the podcast and your account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. So today we're going to step slightly out of our arable remit and into the world of horticulture. Now the NFU has been calling for a horticultural revolution for greater self-sufficiency which has fallen in the past 20 years and we still lag behind many European countries in terms of fruit and veg production. So in today's podcast, we're going to look at if we really do need to be producing more fruit and veg, how we can do this, particularly with such a move away from heavier cultivations associated with some veg crops, and a look at what lessons the arable sector could take from the fresh produce industry. Hi, I'm Natalie Wood, Yara's country arable agronomist, and I'm here to talk about ammonia emissions. Now, ammonia is a big problem in the UK, with 88% of emissions coming from agriculture. Of that, 23% are coming from fertilisers, so what can you do to reduce those emissions? Nitrate fertilisers have less than 3% ammonia emissions, therefore switching from urea to AN reduces ammonia emissions by 10 times. If using urea treated with an inhibitor, then the emissions from that are still double those from nitrates. Therefore, if you want to have some of the lowest ammonia emissions, use Yarabella Axan. For more information, please visit yara.co.uk. My first guest on today's episode is Julian Marks, who is Managing Director of Veg Producers Barfoots, which started on the South Coast but now operates on a large scale around the world to ensure year-round supply for supermarkets. Hello, Alice. Hi, Julian. Great to have you on the podcast. So just to set the scene a bit, how much of the veg that we consume in the UK at the moment would be homegrown? I think the total uh, for for fresh veg in the UK is around 55% of what we consume uh, annually. But that's on a very seasonal basis. So the industry has worked incredibly hard to extend, and always has actually, to extend um, what is homegrown with uh, advances in, in technology, whether that's in storage technology or production technology, crop covering, those sorts of uh, those sorts of things. Uh, actually, we're we're very um, very close to being self sufficient in the likes of uh, root veg and um, and other and other veg that can be stored uh, into the winter. Okay, so based on that, does that mean we've reached the sort of quota for the amount of fruit and veg that we can produce bearing in mind the seasons that we have here in the UK I think I think the challenge is that people want to eat uh, consumers want to eat fresh vegetables all year round and um, the retailers certainly want to sell them so we have to work with the seasons and, and really at Barfoot's what we do is we follow the sunshine around the world uh, and uh, that ensures that we can we can put fresh vegetables on consumers plates um, 52 weeks a year there are opportunities to extend seasons within the UK but we're all 
pretty mindful now about our carbon footprints and the drive to net zero within our UK farming. And often we'll find that if we're not growing in the perfect season within the UK, that actually we're, we're using more carbon uh, and, and emitting more carbon dioxide than we would be if we were importing a product. Okay, that's quite an interesting perspective then. And as I said um, at the beginning, our European counterparts, we're quite behind them in terms of um, fruit and veg production. Is the UK climate and topography less suited to um, fruit and veg production in comparison or are we quite good at producing fruit and veg here? We've got well, we've got good soils, and we probably haven't got enough of them, and so there's always demand for good soils. Uh, we've got a climate that is changing, and uh, certainly in our farming operations, we're seeing uh, the effects of climate change uh, in, in in every area of the world that we work. But particularly in the UK, we seem to be seeing uh, longer, uh, drier springs, and uh, we're seeing uh, wetter summers. And that doesn't help us in terms of, first of all, driving demand for produce, because a lot of things we grow are are very um, barbecue focused and summer focused. And uh, it also makes uh, continuity and managing yield and availability very difficult as well. And we hear a lot about the challenges, but what about opportunities? Um, you know, I'm thinking a lot more consumers um, are buying veg boxes now on sort of the back of COVID. Um, there's things like vertical farming that we're hearing a lot more about. Uh, yes, the, the the COVID crisis has been a very has been an interesting one for our market. Um, it's seen a re-engagement of a lot of consumers with uh, the big retailers because of um, the opportunity to do their shopping in one place and to uh, have a good online offer as well as having plenty of space in store to keep away from other people and uh, that has meant uh, and the lockdown has meant that um, less less meals are being eaten outside of the home so there's been more scratch cooking and that's really thrown up tremendous opportunities for the, the recipe box solutions companies the likes of Hello Fresh and Gusto, Mindful Chef and others. But I think I think there have been opportunities as well, particularly good opportunities for local uh, and the smaller vegetable box operators, whether they've been selling organic or, or conventional produce as well. And then you mentioned vertical farming. I mean, that's a whole different conversation, really, vertical farming. There is it would appear massive interest in, in, um, in the concept and there are uh, companies... Um, venture capitalists and private equity companies putting money into this um, all over the world as as far as we can see. Uh, I think there are some limitations to it. Uh, It's very exciting. It has all sorts of benefits in terms of local uh, produce for local people, reducing transport miles. It's very good in terms of water efficiency, um, hygiene aspects and um, generally the requirement um, or, the, or the ability not to wash a lot of produce but, but I think um, I think the range of crops that are being grown are mainly only leafy salads uh, in, in any volume for which um, though there is a, a good market for it um, they are they are they do tend to be really quite seasonal and uh, so with it with an investment like this you want it to be producing 52 weeks a year and you want it to be selling every leaf or um, this piece of produce um, in those 52 weeks and I think that is something of a challenge as to how you manage um, 
production with uh, with forecasted demand. Yeah. Uh, but then, then there are also some issues, I think, around uh, which technology is being used. As um, if you are thinking about your carbon footprint, um, some of these uh, some of these operations are um, uh, relatively high in energy use because they are replacing the sun with LEDs um, and. Uh, LEDs do give off heat, and so often these units need cooling, and so there's quite a high energy use for cooling as well. So um, I, I don't think um, I don't, I'm not sure that there is the the, the final answer on, on vertical farming there, but it's certainly a very exciting sector. Yeah, and you say that um, we, you know, potentially don't have enough good soil here in the UK and um, that's suitable for growing veg. So for an arable farmer that maybe does have good soil. Um, but doesn't want to take the risk or you know go on a new business venture might letting land out to big veg growers like yourselves be an option as well yes uh, certainly we work with a large number of landowners we work um, with uh, farmers who are looking for different crops within their rotations and so uh, we we rent land all along the south coast where there are potatoes salads our crops and cereal crops, so um, wheat and, and other crops in, in the rotation. Uh, the key to it is obviously the quality of the soils and um, and the availability of water, which is uh, which is hugely important, especially um, given what I was saying about the changing climate. And I guess for growers that are looking to widen their rotation, doing that you kind of minimise your risk because you've got that guaranteed income coming from renting out your land rather than trying out a new crop for yourself thanks julian that's great all right no problem now for growers that do want to try a new crop for themselves my next guest is going to impart some of his wisdom on where a good place to start might be i've got robin wood here of elson seeds hi robin how are you keeping yeah i'm good thanks how are you yeah tip top thanks tip top good good so, Robin, I guess the first question really is, do you actually get many arable farmers looking to start growing veg crops? Yes, we do get um, we do get arable farmers looking to grow veg crops. Um, and I think that a lot of arable farmers are looking to diversify from their standard um, uh, rotation. So it is not new to have people asking about uh, horticultural crops. Well, that's good. That means this podcast isn't in vain. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And we heard from Julian earlier um, that when you know when they speak to um, landowners, they need good soil and water. But is this always the case? And what kind of infrastructure and soil requirements might you need for horticultural crops? I know this is really broad. Yeah, I think I think well a little bit in my head there are there are four key topics, um, Alice, on on this. If you're going to invest in horticultural or, or vegetable crop production, four simple bullet points. Point number one is the marketplace. Horticultural crop production is not cheap. So what one should really know or do is have an idea of who will buy what from you and when before you start to grow a crop. You need you need to know your marketplace. The second uh, point is for any arable farmer thinking about growing vegetable crops is you need to have a good handle or a good understanding of your of your soil or your soil type because this can have a big bearing on the sort of crops that you can or cannot grow uh, on your on your farm. Uh, so, for example, um, brassicas get club root, and, and 
really pernicious disease of brassica crops, and uh, club root is probably it, well, club root appears in soils with a, with a pH below seven. So pH below seven, forget forget growing brassicas in the big picture. If you've got if you've got very very heavy soils, you should forget trying to grow root crops too. Soil, soil type is very very important. If you are um, let's say an arable farmer thinking of growing a small amount of vegetables, then you, you can probably get away without thinking about irrigation. You can probably struggle with it with an inferior soil quality. But if you want to do it professionally, then you do need to make sure you've got access to water, because in a, in a drought year. Or if you're supplying a customer on a regular basis, if you cannot supply, what happens to your contract? So leading professional growers in the UK will have the best soils, they will have access to water to make sure that they can supply their product to their customer, whatever the contract says. If that's all year round or for a given period, they can do it. If you're if you are unable to supply your customer when they expect a product, you might not get your contract back. Yeah. So that's that's why it's a little bit to understand these four points: the marketplace, who you're going to grow for what, and, and at what season, what soil type you have, because heavy, heavier soils are more difficult to crop. Yeah. What labour is available? Because horticultural crops do need labour, planting or weed control for harvest. And and the, and the fourth big point is the finances, because to be a if you want to be a leading large-scale professional grower of horticultural crops, you will need some money to invest in it. But if you're looking at something more local for a farm shop or a restaurant, then it becomes a different kettle of fish. Yeah. Bearing in mind, bearing in mind the market, your soil type, and the labour availability. And, and for sure, as eggs are eggs, cropping, cropping on heavy land gets a little bit difficult when you have a wet spell. <laughs> And, and uh, even for growers, uh, I dare say a crop like pumpkins might be able to tolerate a heavier soil. But if you get a wet autumn, the harvest will be difficult, it'll get messy, it'll damage the next crop soil structure, and how to get pumpkins off a patch when it's um, trucking down the rain becomes a different discussion. So, so the, all these things, all, all these what we might call simple practical things um, that are probably everyday thoughts for a horticultural producer are things that arable farmers need to think about if they are thinking about or wanting to grow something different than to be say standard arable crops but, but, but what, I, what i could say to be honest there are loads and loads of different crops that can be grown the the, the range of horticultural species is is very very wide um and, and it does give somebody with an interest in growing something different uh, a chance to diversify as long as you have a marketplace and the right labour ability uh, blah 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 there are tons of crops that's available to grow there, there really are um, and I would imagine uh, I'd imagine from a uh, at a local level one could find a local buyer of your produce probably quite easily yeah. if, if one if one decided to do so um, but, 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 but to do something on a large scale promptly is, is, a, is, a, is a different discussion, is a more serious um, discussion, should we say. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mentioned marketing. Obviously, that is a really big one. Um, I mean, I'd imagine 
most growers would be maybe looking for smaller, more local or higher value markets? Yes, I would, I would agree. Uh, uh, um, I would agree. If you are looking to diversify your, your, your business and to start to grow some vegetable crops yourself, i.e. not renting out land to, a, to another vegetable producer, if you want to do something yourself, then you need to make sure that you do have somewhere a market in mind or, or a purchaser in mind who knows what you might supply and when you might supply it. Horticultural crop production is not cheap. Um, so you need to start with the end in mind. But that's, that's, to be, that's to be sure. That is if you want to do it yourself. And if you want to start it yourself, then maybe you are best off to keep the risks lower. Do small scales first. <laughs> don't, don't jump in too big. Yeah. And I guess, you know, with COVID, we've seen um, people really connecting more with their food and wanting to buy local and avoid the supermarkets a bit and I mean whether that continues or not I don't know but that seems like that could be a good potential market. Without a doubt, without a doubt I'm pretty sure that there'll be several several hotels and restaurants who will be relying on, on somebody local producing for them top quality fresh local produce um, so I'm pretty sure that the opportunities are there for farmers or growers to diversify and, and to grow something different and to be quite candid the the, the range of species in, in the horticultural or vegetable world is phenomenal there's loads of things that one could grow um one just has to think about the marketplace and how they might do these things should we say yeah and that was kind of my next question and it's really really broad question but where might a grower start if they you know they're thinking about um looking for something new for their rotation or diversifying? Well, I suppose, I suppose if I was a farmer or a grower, um, or, or, or let's say an arable farmer looking to diversify um, with an interest in um, growing some crops, I might go around and look and go and talk to some, some, some local grocers or some local hotels and restaurants and just see what sort of products they might like to purchase uh, from me locally. That's on the assumption we're not going to go and do a thousand acres of Brassica tomorrow morning, go and talk to somebody first of all and see what they might like to buy from you. The next best uh, place to get some, some further advice might be to talk to your local seedsman um, or look at the seedsman's catalogue, a professional seedsman's catalogue, because they will, they will um, indicate crops, varieties, um, production seasons and, and sowing rates, etc., to give one a guide of, of what we might grow and when it might be harvested. Um, that would be two very simple and basic things to do up front. And that's all on the assumption that the, this, the, this, the, the farmer, should we say, wants to do it himself um, with, with his own team. Um, that's what I would do first. Try and find a market, then, then, then take a, speak to a, seeds, a seedsman and see what they, what they might have in their portfolio that could fit into your, uh, into your plans. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Excellent. Thanks, Robin. You're welcome. Ambassador is the joint highest yielding variety on the recommended list, offering growers increased security in suboptimal nitrogen conditions. Ambassador possesses Nflex, the latest trait to come from Limograin's market-leading oilseed rape breeding program. It is a fully loaded hybrid combining Nflex with turnip yellow virus, pod shatter, and RLM7 foma resistance. Learn more and register for Limograin's Oilseed Rate virtual demo on Wednesday the 5th of May.
by visiting lgseeds.co.uk forward slash osrvtt. Now, veg production has maybe a bit of a reputation for not being quite so kind on the environment in comparison to a combinable crop. So doing a podcast on growing more veg at a time when people are more conscious of soil health seemed a bit counterintuitive. So to balance the bow, I'm very pleased to have sustainable agronomy specialist Charlie Curtis of Progressive Agriculture here. And before she took on this new role, she worked for G's Fresh and M&S. So she's very seasoned in the world of fresh produce. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. So Charlie, I read this tweet the other day from a farmer that said, It's so hard to be kind to the land growing root veg and so easy to be kind to it producing meat. It's unfortunate that we are being told to do the opposite. And I just thought that's so true. We're in this contradictory situation now that we're being told to eat less meat, do less cultivations, but grow more plant protein. I mean, as you know, we grow salad crops, which we try and really do as sustainably as possible. And I also keep a few sheep, so I'm not suggesting at all that we should be, you know, ditching livestock for veg. But for an arable farmer trying to improve their soil health, I'd imagine they might think growing veg is the last thing they should be doing. So can veg still be produced following the same soil health principles? Absolutely. I think the difference is is that... Some of the principles you just have to amend to suit that system. Um, you know, w- within the veg rotation, you've still got cover crops, you've still got green manures, you know, you're still looking at having a living root all year round. Um, the difference is, of course, that you're having to, I suppose, cultivate the land a little bit more than you would be if you were in an arable rotation. Um, but I'd say that pretty much every veg farmer that I work with has an arable crop within their rotation and and that's when a lot of the really good work gets done and it's almost like with the arable part you go two steps forward and with the veg part you possibly sometimes go only one step back but that's still progress and you obviously kind of advise um growers in this area veg growers and arable farmers as well what kind of things are you looking at Oh gosh, we're doing lots of really cool, really exciting stuff. So we're looking at things like companion crops, um, but companion crops that are attractive to your beneficial insects that you plant or intercrop within your crop. So things like a lissom, um, which is actually like a love hotel for things like hoverflies, um, which of course can absolutely go through your crop and, and eat and destroy a lot of the aphid crop challenges that you've got. Um, we're looking at research guys like fantastic, what are they called, AgriSound, a company I came across recently who have created a plastic flower that can sit in your field and monitor these pollinators and these beneficials for you. So you can actually, I suppose, justify um, by putting these, these companion crops in because you can see how active the insects are around them. Yeah. And we're looking at sort of different types of cover crops as well. So for me, green manures are fantastic. Short life, so you stick them in the ground for about six to eight weeks. Then you mulch them down, and they deliver really, you know, a good lot of nitrogen and um, nutrients to the crop about two, three weeks post planting. That's natural. So you've maintained that cover all year round with your cover crop, then your green manure, and then you've got that sort of an additional hit from the green manure crop when it's mulched down later on. So we're looking at that sap testing, which is probably one of my favourite things at the moment, where we are instead of leaf tissue testing, we're actually testing the sap of the crop. Um, 
So it's a bit like you and I having a blood test. It's giving you real time what's going on within that crop, where it's deficient, but also where it's excessive. So we can start to now tailor our feed regimes based on what the crop really needs rather than a routine, which is what we've done habitually. Um, we are looking at irrigation methods at the moment, so getting really down to precision irrigation um, and understanding how we can almost grid fields rather than just going up and down with um, with a sprayer. Um, very much about reducing our use on synthetics because we know that particularly in veg, that's a big area that we get um, criticised for. Yeah. So it's understanding how grazing in a smart and sustainable rotation can help. The inputs of, you know, again, as we mentioned, cover crops, farmyard manures and compost. There's loads and loads of really cool stuff going on. Yeah. So there's certainly no risk of, you know, veg growers getting left behind when it comes to this more agroecological approach to farming. I, I don't see there's any reason why not to. I appreciate that it's not cheap. And, of course, the cost of the crop is much higher. It's high value. But you plan this by looking at and creating sustainable rotation. And at the beginning of the year, you plan out your products. You plan out your trials. You're not trying to do everything all at once. You define your measurables um, and you look at new ways to measure. And this is where this fantastic new agriculture 4.0, you know, all these new sensors that are out, as I mentioned, some of those things like AgriSound or these new um, irrigation machines and things like that are there to sort of help you justify the change and, and improvements as you're seeing it. Yeah. And fresh produce has always sort of been slightly ahead of the arable sector in that they've, you know, lost a lot more active ingredients and things like that and they've perhaps had to innovate a bit faster. So what lessons do you think the arable sector could take away from the fresh produce industry? It is very much looking at what they're using now to control some of the pests and diseases that they have. So, um, for example, wheat gets septoria, celery gets septoria. So have a look and understand what it is that the celery guys are using um, because they haven't got the same amount of actives that the guys do in wheat. Um, aphid control, you know, what the guys are doing on some of the organic farms is incredible with the use of IPM and releasing ladybird larvae, lacewings and the parasitic wasps. You know, how can you mirror that in an arable field? I know, appreciate the fields are larger, but you've got fantastic hedgerows that you can almost create to become laboratories or breeding breeding grounds, rather, for these beneficial insects. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember when I first started as a journalist, which wasn't that many years ago, but still a fair few, um, and I did quite a lot with soft fruit, and they were talking about... Um, pheromone traps and things like that but that was a, quite a long time ago and we're still not really seeing anything like that in arable yeah but this, i think it needs to, it it'll come and and actually we've got some exemplars out in our industry particularly in produce industry that open their doors up for people to come um, and you can go and see how things work and understand and then of course not there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all yeah um, so some of the camera traps are out there for moths so you can start counting as you said the pheromone traps you can go and see how the likes of I don't know, fantastic farms like um, Marion Raven at, at Hugh Lowe, what they're doing, and take it back to your arable farm and, and, and see how that can work in your in your sort of facility and your operation. Yeah. And and then to flip that last question, what yeah. what lessons do you think maybe fresh produce could take from arable? I think the whole movement of no till, minimum till, looking at the fungus and the soil health part definitely something the guys can look at more in veg i think at the moment we're the veg guys are very much focused above ground yeah and we're looking at reducing our actives you know a lot of people are going more um, regenerative but actually the use of the you know the role that microbes and fungal 
fucking plays in the soil is phenomenal. And this is something that I'm seeing a lot happen in arable, you know, the use of inoculating the soil, different types of amino acids, all that sort of thing, how that can be transferred into a veg crop. The, the challenge with veg crop, of course, it's not in the ground for as long, mm. but that's not mean to say that the science can't be replicated or amended to suit that. There's so much there going on in both sections. There's so much that can be shared. I really cool ideas that actually can go away and, and see how you can amend it to your setup, really. Yeah, be a, a produce grower, a potato grower, or um, I don't know, you know, if you're growing OSR or something, there's always something there. I'm recently involved in a project looking at um, some fantastic new biopesticides that are coming through from OSR. Now, it may not necessarily work for them, but if it works, and or if it has that role, where else can it be used? Got so much to look forward to, and this potential GE coming along. Um, I think I'm just really excited. I speak to the guys at various different centres of excellence. You've got the guys at CHAP, you've got a fantastic team at LEAF, Agritechy, and they're really churning out some fantastic exemplars and, and, and research pieces that I don't think, you, it doesn't matter if you're growing veg, or if you're growing fruit, or if you're growing arable, there's something in it for everybody. And it's the getting together and having that chat and having that sort of sharing experiences that I think is probably the most valuable thing we've got in the minute. Yeah. And on that support from these different places, I think a lot of veg goers um, maybe felt a bit excluded when details of the sustainable farming incentive came out a few months ago. Do you think that there will be, you know, any more support from government when it comes to veg production? I, I mean, I don't think they seem particularly bothered about things like food security and perhaps producing more veg, but do you think that government are going to help us in any way? I think so. Um, and I can't imagine the likes of Minette Batters or Caroline, Caroline Drummond sitting back and not letting them. Um, you know, it's not a big beneficiary of the scheme. Um, but actually, pretty much, as I said, every veg grower that I know has that arable part within their rotation or grasslands. So I think the impact could be more significant than we think. Um, and actually, it also opens up that ability to, you know, to provide diversification, which is obviously one of the big areas that they're looking at. Yeah. Um, and, you know, enterprise stacking, I think they keep calling it. So I don't think it's a bad... I think, you know, horticulture and produce will benefit from it. Um, we've just got to almost, I suppose, all of us are actually really waiting around to see what it looks like. Well, yeah, exactly. I think we're all waiting to see what the outcome is there, aren't we? Thank you, Charlie. It was great to have you. Now, I'm conscious that this episode is meant to be about fruit and veg, and we've spent most of it talking about veg crops. So my next guest is arable farmer Stephen Briggs from Cambridgeshire, who is using agroforestry to produce fruit on his farm. Hi, Stephen. Hello. So, Stephen, would you mind just um, starting by telling us a bit about um, your system and maybe kind of how it looks and why you decided to go down the agroforestry route? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, my wife and I, uh, Lynn and myself, we were first generation farmers at Whitehall Farm uh, in Cambridgeshire on the edge of Peterborough. Um, the farm's 254 acres uh, and we are blessed with some great peat soils but also some heavy clay, brick clay soils. And when we started farming back there back in 2007, we, we became quite aware quite quickly that um, uh, the soils, the, the peat soils were quite erodible uh, from sort of wind erosion and being left bare. 
soil scientist, you know, losing soil to sort of degradation was, was pretty unpalatable. Mm. So I needed to try and find a way to, um, to combat that. So we set up the agroforestry back in 2009. Uh, and if you can imagine a landscape, a very open, flat landscape, at or just below sea level with you know, great soils, quite, quite, quite uh, prone to erosion. Uh, what we did is we established uh, 4,500 trees uh, in lines which are facing sort of north-south, uh, single lines of trees, three metres between each tree, and then 27 metres between each row of trees right across well, seven, seven fields, so 52 hectares altogether. And underneath each tree strip, there's a three metre sort of pollen, nectar, wildflower area, and that leaves us a 24 metre sort of alley of uh, cropping between each, uh, each row of trees. Uh, and the 24 metres is quite important because all our machinery is is, is now actually 6 metres, so we're, we're operating a controlled traffic farming system. But whether your machinery is 3, 4, 6, 12 or 24 metres, it's sort of multiples of, of the sort of um, 3 or 4 metres or 6 metres. Yeah. So then between those trees, you're then growing arable crops? That's right, arable and vegetable crops. So, you know, predominantly... We specialise in um, uh, cereals, um, either for seed or, or for um, gluten-free markets or for, for high-value markets. Um, but we, 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 we've grown vegetables as well, sort of field-scale vegetables, so things like um, uh, red beet, uh, leeks, onions, that kind of thing. Okay. And 4,500 trees, that's a lot of trees. Yeah, it is a lot of trees. Um uh, when we when we established the system, um, obviously we, we wanted to pick trees uh, that would provide us uh, effectively regular wind breaks to you know, as a primary focus to slow down or stop to abate the erosion issue. Um, but at the same time, those trees um, and the refuges underneath those trees provide lots of habitat for beneficial insects and pollinators uh, which which bring benefit to our farming system in terms of natural predator control um, and uh, having the trees in place also brings sort of some unforeseen benefits in terms of um, mixing perennial crops and annual crops together okay um, you know in a climate change world asking a seed planted to start from scratch every year uh, and, and throwing your literally throwing your uh, your work as a farmer into the roulette wheel that is uh, nature and not knowing if it's going to be dry or wet or cold or hot you know it's, it's a real risk farming is gambling at the western times um so so having a mixture of perennials and annuals gives us a bit of a uh, a sort of uh, a, a, a double option. Um, the trees are obviously w- way more robust against uh, very wet or very dry periods, or very hot or very cold periods. So we've got two crops in the same field. And and the, the second the second uh, rationale is that we um, uh, we wanted to farm really in a, in a three dimensional way. 
So the, the, the trees that we, of choice that we've got, which we'll come to in a second, um, they're not occupying the same space, either in terms of canopy or in terms of below ground roots as, as the other crops. So there's a, there's a segmentation of resources in time and space in terms of using sunlight, using water, using nutrients. So we chose, uh, we opted to choose fruit trees and then we're, we've, we've gone with apples um, back in 2007, 13 different varieties. Uh, and we chose apples mainly because we're, well, for a bunch of reasons really. One, because there wasn't apples immediately in the area uh, where the farm is, but there's some in the region. Mm. Um, so the disease pressure was quite low. Secondly, um, it, apples meant we could, we could um, add value. And thirdly, uh, we're tenants on the farm, so we needed an economic return within the uh, the 15-year period of our initial tenancy. So, so you know, we couldn't literally couldn't wait 30 years for a poplar tree or yeah. 150 years for an oak tree. You know, we 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 needed an economic return within the last time of tenancy. So, so those sort of three things together um, uh, led us down the route of, of sort of choosing fruit trees that we can have value to. Yeah. And that's something that kind of requires a different um, skill set, and that's kind of what you do with the fruit. So marketing the fruit, um, especially on what sounds like quite a big scale to me. So how how have you done that? So the the, the system's deliberately set up so they're all late maturing, um, sort of late autumn trees. So we, we harvest the cereal crops, and then when we've got stubble in place, we've then got access to go back harvest the fruit so we probably finish harvest in August on the cereals or the vegetables and then we go back in September early October harvest the fruit and then the whole cycle you know eat sleep eat sleep time repeat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and you know initially the fruit we sold into wholesale markets um, uh, and distributed off the farm but then progressively we've um, started uh, processing and retailing ourselves so the, the fruit is either uh, sold fresh through our farm shop which we developed more recently established Harvest Palm Farm Shop in um, 2019 so we opened, opened a, a retail business and a, a sort of cafe and farm visit business on the back of this um, and then um, uh, more and more of it uh, majority of it is, is pressed into apple juice which has got a longer shelf life um, and then we retail that directly either either through online sales or direct from the farm shop okay and and I know you're organic but the kind of the agronomy um, of fruit production was that fairly easy to get your head around or did that take a bit of reading as well oh it was completely different I mean yeah, we were complete novices when it came to sort of uh, trees, so it's something we had to learn quite quickly. But it's like any other crop; it's, it's something you just have to 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 understand the the basic principles of nutrition and pest and disease control and everything else. But 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 what's what's pleasing um, uh, is that you know whether it's a monocultural field of wheat or a monocultural orchard of apples, you know they're high high disease, high pressure situations. 
because they're monocultures. But what we've created on the farm is is everything anything but a monoculture. So we've, we've got trees and we have very, very low uh, or, or complete absence of, of sort of disease and pest issues because it's not a monoculture. You know, it's an orchard full of wheat. Yeah. Uh, and equally, the wheat's got lots of fruit trees in it um, uh, with understories of wildflowers and, and, pollen, and pollinating plants. So we, we, we really don't have any disease issues in the um, uh, in the cereals either because we have this this more diverse environment. Yeah, no, it sounds so amazing. It's, it, it, it's sort of it, it's it's the ultimate sort of uh, integrated farm management uh, sort of approach uh, by taking sort of Darwinian principles of diversity overcoming problems. Yeah. Um, one of the unexpected, I suppose, benefits. Uh, is that obviously by having those trees, tree lines in place across the fields, it massively reduces the, the 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 wind speed at sort of ground level, which is our intended purpose for for um, uh, uh, you know sort of sort of protection. But of course, that also provides more spray days. So mm-hmm. if you if you if you're out there uh, applying we're we're applying uh, trace elements to to, to crops. Um, but if, if it wasn't trace elements and it was a herbicide or a fungicide or whatever, mm. you could apply them on days in the agroforestry system that you couldn't apply in an open field because it would be too windy. Yeah. So there's some other sort of second order benefits. And obviously we're kind of seeing this, um, you know, this bigger focus on carbon now and carbon mm. capture. Do you think um, that, you know, more growers might consider agroforestry for this reason? I'm thinking it could be quite lucrative if you're getting money for your fruit, money for sequestering carbon, and you're also growing arable crops at the same time. Yes, I mean, you know, what we've tried to do on the farm is to, is to layer different opportunities and enterprises. And we've done that with, you know, with cereals, with, with fruit trees, etc. But you're right, there, there's lots of opportunities for other things that are sort of non-crop-based. So we see we see lots of benefits from a pest and disease management and a biodiversity um, perspective. So we've been we've been working with universities, PhD and MSc students, and we've seen things like you know ten times species richness enhancement with the agroforestry, four hundred percent more pollinating insects, two hundred and fifty percent more bumblebees. That that kind of thing, you know, is the sort of figures that have been measured by the researchers, um, and that has a value. Uh, and uh, I think yes, there is there is potential. You know, government want us to plant more trees. That's for sure. And if they want to plant more trees at the scale they're talking about for uh, net zero carbon, then some of that's going to have to go on agricultural land and agroforestry to be part of the mix. Um, but there's also the other natural capital uh, sort of contract, private contract, public contracts that uh, can pay for biodiversity, can pay for um, other forms of natural capital, you know, pollinators, insects, farmland birds. Uh, I think the RSB PB told us that the, um, the lapwings wouldn't like the agroforestry because it was, you know, had trees in it. Well, clearly they didn't send the memo to the uh, the lapwings because the lapwings love the agroforestry <laughs> because... Um, they they nest in in the 
the relatively open areas and there's a lot more insect life and that's a protein source for you know the young fledged birds etc when they've hatched so they love it yeah um so there will be i think lots of opportunities and there's ongoing work with things like the testing trial program on agroforestry defra are really keen to get agroforestry into the new sort of domestic land use policy there's going to be great opportunities to sort of engage with corporates to perhaps part fund some of this activity as natural capital contracts tree planting uh, biodiversity um, net gain that kind of thing so i think there there are there are um, there are significant opportunities coming i think we'll we're certainly seeing a lot more interest in farmers interested because it's not like planting a woodland where you know 100 percent of the land land use change we're only talking at sort of somewhere between seven and ten percent of the land area having a tree on it yeah. bringing all those benefits that we just talked about in biodiversity and climate change resilience etc um 94 96 of the land is still doing exactly what it was doing before but benefiting from having those those um perennials or those trees in place encourage people to come and have a look really but more trees in the world that can never be a bad thing can it well there aren't there aren't many people that don't like a tree exactly <laughs> okay take care thanks very much And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for for today. But I hope you enjoyed stepping out of the arable sector for an episode and into the world of fresh produce. Our next episode of the podcast will be a bumper episode in conjunction with Arable Weed Week, which takes place on June the 14th to the 18th. And you can find out more about that event at croptechshow.com forward slash AWW. We're loving all your podcast feedback at the moment. And if you've got a spare minute, we would also love it if you could just leave a little review and tell us why. Thank you and see you next time.